Okay, so we're ready for chapter nine. And in the last chapter, he threw his hatchet at the porcupine and had sparks um, come off of it when it hit the rocks in his little hut. So let's see what he does with that information. Brian found it was a long way from sparks to fire. Clearly, there had to be something for the sparks to ignite, some kind of tinder or kindling. But what? He brought some dried grass in, tapped sparks into it, and watched them die. He tried small twigs, breaking them into little pieces, but that was worse than the grass. Then he tried a combination of the two, grass and twigs. Nothing. He had no trouble getting sparks, but the tiny bits of hot stone or metal, he couldn't tell which they were, just sputtered and died. He needed something finer, something soft and fine and fluffy to catch the bits of fire. Shredded paper would be nice, but he had no paper. So close, he said aloud. I'm so close. He put the hatchet back in his belt and went out of the shelter, limping on his sore leg. There had to be something. There had to be. Man had made fire. There had been fire for thousands, millions of years. There had to be a way. He dug into his pockets and found the $20 bill in his wallet. Paper. Worthless paper out here. But if he could get a fire going. He ripped the 20 into tiny pieces, made a pile of pieces, and hit sparks into them. Nothing. They just wouldn't take the sparks. But there had to be a way, some way to do it. Not 20 feet to his right, leaning out over the water, were birches, and he stood looking at them for a full half minute before they registered in his mind. They were a beautiful white with bark-like with bark clean, slightly speckled paper. Paper. He moved to the trees. Where the bark was peeling from the trunks, it lifted in tiny tendrils, almost fluffs. Brian plucked some of them loose, rolled them in his fingers. They seemed flammable, dry, and nearly powdery. He pulled and twisted bits off the trees, packing them in one hand while he picked them with the other, picking and gathering until he had a wad close to the size of a baseball. Then he went back into the shelter and arranged the ball of birch bark peelings at the base of the black rock. As an afterthought, he threw in the remains of the $20 bill. He struck, and a stream of sparks fell into the bark and quickly died. But this time, one spark fell on one small hair of dry bark, almost a thread of bark, and seemed to glow a bit brighter than it before it died. The material had to be finer. There had to be a soft and incredibly fine nest for the sparks. I must make a home for the sparks, he thought. A perfect home, or they won't stay. They won't make fire. He started ripping the bark using his fingernails at first, and when that didn't work, he used the sharp edge of the hatchet, cutting the bark into thin slivers, hairs so fine they were almost not there. It was painstaking work, slow work, and he stayed with it for over two hours. Twice he stopped for a handful of berries and once to go to the lake for a drink. Then back to work, the sun on his back, until at last he had a ball of fluff as big as a grapefruit, dry birch bark fluff. He positioned his spark nest, as he thought of it, at the base of the rock, 
used his thumb to make a small depression in the middle and slammed the back of the hatchet down across the black rock. A cloud of sparks rained down, most of them missing the nest, but some, perhaps thirty or so, hit in the depression, and of those six or seven found fuel and grew, smoldered, and caused the bark to take on the red glow, and then they went out. Close. He was close. He repositioned the nest, made a new and smaller dent with his thumb, and struck again. More sparks, a slight glow, then nothing. It's me, he thought. I'm doing something wrong. I do not know this. A cave dweller would have had a fire by now. A Cro-Magnon man would have had fire by now. But I don't know this. I don't know how to make fire. Maybe not enough sparks. He settled the nest in place once more and hit the rock with a series of blows as fast as he could. The sparks flowed like a golden waterfall. At first they seemed to take. There were several, many sparks that found life and took briefly, but they all died. Starved. He leaned back. They are like me. They are starving. It wasn't quantity. There were plenty of sparks, but they needed more. I would kill, he thought suddenly, for a book of matches. Just one book. Just one match. I would kill. What makes fire? He thought back to school. To all those science classes. Had he ever learned what made fire? Did a teacher ever stand up and say, This is what makes fire? He shook his head and tried to focus his thoughts. What did it take? You had to have fuel, he thought. And he had that. The bark was fuel. Oxygen. There had to be air. He needed to add air. He had to fan on it or blow on it. <clears throat> he made the nest ready again and then held the hatchet backward, tensed, and struck four quick blows. Sparks came down and he leaned forward as fast as he could and blew. Too hard. There was a bright, almost intense glow and then it was gone. He had blown it out. Another set of strikes, more sparks. He leaned in blue, but gently this time, holding back and aiming the stream of air from his mouth to hit the brightest spot. Five or six sparks had fallen in a tight mass of bark hair, and Brian centered his efforts there. The sparks grew with his gentle breath. The red glow moved from the sparks themselves into the bark, moved and grew and became worms glowing red worms that crawled up the bark hairs and caught other threads of bark and grew until there was a pocket of red as big as a quarter, a glowing red coal of heat. And when he ran out of breath and paused to inhale, the red ball suddenly burst into flame. Fire, he yelled. I've got fire. I've got it. I've got it. I've got it. But the flames were thick and oily and burning fast consuming the ball of bark as fast as if it were gasoline. He had to feed the flames and keep them going. Working as fast as he could, he carefully placed the dried grass and wood pieces he had tried at first on top of the bark and was gratified to see them take. But they would go fast. He needed more and more. He could not let the flames go out. He ran from the shelter to the pines and started breaking off the low, dead, small limbs. These he threw in the shelter and went back for more, threw those in, and squatted to break and feed the hungry flames. When the small wood was going well, he went out and found larger wood, 
and did not relax until that was going. Then he leaned back against the wood brace of his door opening and smiled. I have a friend, he thought. I have a friend now, a hungry friend, but a good one. I have a friend named Fire. Hello, Fire. The curve of the rock back made an almost perfect drawing flue that carried the smoke up through the cracks of the roof but held the heat. If he kept the fire small, it would be perfect and would keep anything like the porcupine from coming through the door again. A friend and a guard, he thought. So much from a little spark. A friend and a guard from a tiny spark. He looked around and wished he had somebody to tell this thing, to show this thing he had done, but there was nobody, nothing but the trees and sun and breeze and the lake. Nobody, and he thought, rolling thoughts, with the smoke curling up over his head and the smile still half on his face, he thought, I wonder what they're doing now. I wonder what my father is doing now. I wonder what my mother is doing now. I wonder if she is with him. Chapter 10 He could not at first leave the fire. It was so precious to him, so close and sweet a thing, the yellow and red flames brightening the dark interior of the shelter and happy crackle of the dry wood as it burned, that he could not leave it. He went to the trees and brought in many dead limbs as he as many dead limbs as he could chop off and carry, and when he had a large pile of them he sat near the fire, though it was getting into the warm middle part of the day, and he was hot, and he broke them all into small pieces and fed the fire. I will not let you go out, he said to himself, to the flames, not ever. And so he sat through a long part of the day, keeping the flames even, eating from his stock of raspberries, leaving to drink from the lake when he was thirsty. In the afternoon, toward the evening, with his face smoke-smeared and his skin red from the heat, he finally began to think ahead to what he needed to do. He would need a large wood pile to get through the night. It would be almost impossible to find wood in the dark, so he had to have it all in and cut and stacked before the sun went down. Brian made certain the fire was banked with new wood and then went out of the shelter and searched for a good fuel supply. Up the hill from the campsite, the same windstorm that left him a place to land the plane, had that only been three or four days ago, had dropped three large white pines across each other. They were dead now, dry and filled with weathered, dry, dead limbs, enough for many days. He chopped and broke and carried wood back to the camp, stacking the pieces under the overhang until he had what he thought to be an enormous pile, as high as his head and six feet across the base. Between trips, he added small pieces to the fire to keep it going, and on one of the trips to get wood, he noticed an added advantage of the fire. When he was in the shade of the trees breaking limbs, the mosquitoes swarmed on him as usual. But when he came to the fire, or just near the shelter where the smoke eddied and swirled, the insects were gone. It was a wonderful discovery. The mosquitoes had nearly driven him mad, and the thought of being rid of them lifted his spirits. On another trip, he looked back and saw the smoke curling up through the trees and realized, for the first time, that now he had the means to make a signal. He could carry a burning stick and build a signal and perhaps attract attention. 
which meant more wood and still more wood. There did not seem to be an end to the wood that he was going to need, and he spent all the rest of the afternoon into dusk making wood trips. At dark, he settled in again for the night, next to the fire with a stack of short pieces ready to put on, and he ate the rest of the raspberries. During all the work of the day, his leg had loosened, but it still ached a bit, and he rubbed it and watched the fire and thought for the first time since the crash that he might be getting a handle on things. He might be starting to do something other than just sit. He was out of food, but he could look tomorrow and he could build a signal fire tomorrow and get more wood tomorrow. The fire cut the night coolness and settled him back into sleep, thinking of tomorrow. He slept hard and wasn't sure what awakened him, but his eyes came open and he stared into the darkness. The fire had burned down and looked out, but he stirred with a piece of wood and found a bed of coals still glowing hot and red. With small pieces of wood and carefully blowing, he soon had the blaze going again. It had been close. He had been sure to try and sleep in short intervals so that he could keep the fire going, and he tried to think of a way to regulate his sleep, but it made him sleepy to think about it, and he was just going under again when he heard the sound again. It was not unlike the sound of the porcupine, something slithering and being dragged across the sand. But when he looked out the door opening, it was too dark to see anything. Whatever it was stopped making that sound in a few moments, and he thought that he heard something sloshing into the water at the shoreline. But he had fire now and plenty of wood, so he wasn't as worried as he had been the night before. He dozed, slept for a time, awakened again just at dawn gray light and added wood to the still smoking fire before standing outside and stretching. Standing with his arms stretched over his head and the tight knot of hunger in his stomach, he looked toward the lake and saw the tracks. They were strange, a main center line up from the lake in the sand with claw marks to the side leading to a small pile of sand and then going back down to the water. He walked over and squatted near them, studied them, and tried to make sense of them. Whatever had made the tracks had some kind of flat, dragging bottom in the middle and was apparently pushed along by the legs that stuck out to the side. Up from the water to the small pile of sand, then back down into the water, some animal, some kind of water animal that had come up to the sand to do what? To do something with the sand, to play and make a pile in the sand? He smiled. City boy, he thought. Oh, you city boy with your city ways. He made a mirror in his mind, a mirror of himself, and saw how he must look. City boy with your city ways, sitting in the sand, trying to read the tracks and not knowing, not understanding. Why would anything wild come up from the water to play in the sand? Not that way. Animals weren't that way. They didn't waste time that way. It had come up from the water for a reason, a good reason, and he must try to understand the reason. He must change to fully understand the reason himself or he would not make it. It had come up from the water for a reason, and the reason, he thought, squatting, the reason had to do with the pile of sand. He brushed the top off gently with his hand, but found only damp sand. Still, still there must be a reason, and he carefully kept scraping and digging, 
until four inches down, he suddenly came into a small chamber in the cool, damp sand, and there lay eggs, many eggs, almost perfectly round eggs the size of table tennis balls. And he laughed then because he knew it had been a turtle. He had seen a show on television about sea turtles that came up onto beaches and laid their eggs in the sand. There must be freshwater lake turtles that did the same. Maybe snapping turtles. He had heard of snapping turtles. They became fairly large, he thought. It must have been a snapper that came up in the night when he heard the noise that awakened him. She must have come then and laid the eggs. Food. More than eggs, more than knowledge, more than anything, this was food. His stomach tightened and rolled and made noise as he looked at the eggs, as if his stomach belonged to somebody else, or had seen the eggs with its own eyes and was demanding food. The hunger, always there, had been somewhat controlled and dormant when there was nothing to eat. But with the eggs came the scream to eat. His whole body craved food with such an intensity that it quickened his breath. He reached into the nest and pulled the eggs out one at a time. There were 17 of them, each as round as a ball and white. They had leathery shells that gave instead of breaking when he squeezed them. When he had them heaped on the sand in a pyramid, he had never felt so rich somehow. He suddenly realized that he did not know how to eat them. He had a fire, but no way to cook them, no container, and he had never thought of eating a raw egg. He had an uncle named Carter, his father's brother, who always put an egg in a glass of milk and drank it in the morning. Brian had watched him do it once, just once, and when the runny part of the white left the glass and went into his uncle's mouth and down his throat in a single gulp, Brian almost lost everything he had ever eaten. Still, he thought, still, as his stomach moved toward his backbone, he became less and less fussy. Some natives in the world ate grasshoppers and ants, and if they could do that, he could get a raw egg down. He picked one up and tried to break the shell and found it surprisingly tough. Finally, using the hatchet, he sharpened a stick and poked a hole in the egg. He widened the hole with his finger and looked inside. Just an egg. It had a dark yellow yolk and not so much white as he thought there would be. Just an egg. Food. Just an egg he had to eat. Raw. He looked out across the lake and brought the egg to his mouth and closed his eyes and sucked and squeezed the egg at the same time and swallowed as fast as he could. Ugh. It had a greasy, almost oily taste, but it was still an egg. His throat tried to throw it back up. His whole body seemed to convulse with it, but his stomach took it, held it, and demanded more. The second egg was easier, and by the third one, he had no trouble at all. It just slid down. He ate six of them, could have easily eaten all of them and not been full, but part of him said to hold back to save the rest. He could not now believe the hunger, the eggs had awakened it fully, roaringly, so that it tore at him. After the sixth egg, he ripped the shell open and licked the inside clean, then went back and ripped the other five open and licked them out as well, and wondered if he could eat the shells. There must be some food value in them, 
but when he tried, they were too leathery to chew, and he couldn't get them down. He stood away from the eggs for a moment, literally stood and turned away so that he could not see them. If he looked at them, he would have to eat more. He would store them in the shelter and eat only one a day. He fought the hunger down again and controlled it. He would take them now and store them and save them and eat one a day. And he realized he thought that, thought it that he had forgotten that they might come. The searchers. Surely they would come before he could eat all of the eggs at one a day. He had forgotten to think about them, and that wasn't good. He had to keep thinking about them, because if he forgot them and did not think of them, they might forget about him. And he had to keep hoping. He had to keep hoping.